You are listening to Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris, on the week of November 24, 2021. Just as a content warning to our listeners, this episode does contain mentions of white supremacist violence perpetrated on August 11th and 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville. Four years ago, community members and students from across Virginia rose up in community defense against a horde of white nationalists and neo-Nazis who organized the deadly Unite the Right Torch March and Rally on the weekend of August 11th and 12th, 2017. The deadly rally resulted in the murder of Heather Heyer, dozens of people sustaining serious injuries and immeasurable, long-lasting trauma. Over the last four years, there has been a lot of litigation surrounding this incident. Yesterday, the jury came back in the civil trial and federal court put forth by some of the survivors of the horrific white supremacist attacks on A11 and A12 against the defendants, dozens of white supremacists who perpetuated the violence. After over four weeks of trial and three days of jury deliberations, the jury released a partial verdict that found the defendants civilly liable for conspiring to commit violence. The jury also agreed on a range of punitive damages on the other claims, awarding more than $25 million to the plaintiffs in this case. This week on Race Capital, I am in conversation with Lisa Wolfork, Associate Professor of English at the University of Virginia, and Christina Rivera of Congregate Seville, a Unitarian Universalist minister, as they reflect on the recent four-year anniversary of A11 and A12, and the impact of the Signs v. Kessler trial on members of the Charlottesville community. Before we get into our interview, we want to start off by sharing an excerpt of a statement released yesterday from Charlottesville anti-fascist in the wake of the Signs v. Kessler trial. Charlottesville anti-fascists are in awe of the courage and fortitude of the plaintiffs in the Signs v. Kessler case. Listening to the trial was exhausting enough, and we cannot imagine what it was like to be in the courtroom and on the witness stand. We are happy that there were some positive outcomes in this case, and we hope the community members involved are given the love and support they need. But the summer of 2017 in Charlottesville was neither the beginning nor the end of the threat that white supremacy poses to our community. While it will be satisfying to see this particular set of Nazis bankrupted, we hope that all those following the case recognize that there is still so much to do to root out fascism and confront a growing Nazi threat in America. Anti-fascists around the globe have been fighting white supremacy for decades and will continue to do so. The defendants tried to create a boogeyman in Antifa. This strategy is a tool to divide us and distract us from their goals of creating a nationalist ethnostate. To be anti-fascist is to rise against systems, movements, and powerful figures that seek to further oppress marginalized community members. To be anti-fascist is to contribute to mutual aid networks that make sure our neighbors are fed, clothed, and healthy. We create alternatives to the police and carceral systems that prioritize the safety of community members. We spend countless hours identifying white supremacists and their counterparts so when they come to town or attempt to visit their violence and hateful speech on other communities, our friends and neighbors are aware and we can all work to keep us safe. 
You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Kalia Harris. Stay tuned for our conversation with Lisa Woolfork and Christina Rivera as we center the people's narrative on the ground in so-called Charlottesville. Welcome to the show, Lisa and Christina. We are so happy to have y'all with us this week. And thank you so much for joining us. Can y'all tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Rivera, she, her pronouns. And I'm coming to you from uh, beautiful Augusta County, Virginia, just outside of Charlottesville. And I guess the thing to know about me is I am a Unitarian Universalist minister. I'm one of the co-presidents of Congregate Charlottesville, and I'm excited to be here. How about you, Lisa? I too am excited to be here. I'm Lisa Woolfork, um, she, her pronouns. I am coming to you from the city of Charlottesville on Monacan land, unceded Monacan territory. And I too am glad to be here. I consider myself a community ass bitch. And I do know that my title seems to say associate professor of English at the University of Virginia. That is not why I consider myself being here today. That's my job. That is my employment. And that's something, and I do enjoy that work very much, teaching African-American literature and culture. But I also, I feel like I am here because I am really committed to difficult processes that are required for social change. I'm very glad to be here to talk about it. Yes, well, y'all, we are happy you're here. And honestly, let's get right into it. It's a lot going on right now in Charlottesville. Let's just situate ourselves. There's this Signs v. Kessler civil trial happening, wrapping up with closing statements to the jury today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what is going on and what this trial means for the community of Charlottesville? I would just like to remind people that Charlottesville is America. There are folks who want to believe that the things that are happening here only happen here and only happen to us. That is false. I think that the ways in which Charlottesville has been turned into a hashtag has turned us into kind of a canary in the coal mine kind of thing for what's going to happen. If it can happen in this community, it can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere and it has happened anywhere and it is still currently happening anywhere and everywhere. I think the way you set the place was thinking about Signs v. Kessler and what it means for the community of Charlottesville, which the people that I know, people that I am in community with are exhausted and overwhelmed. And the trial itself has been a a reopening of wounds and re-traumatizing in many ways. My focus has been thinking about that as well, but also insisting that we situate this more largely and more broadly. I think about the signs v. Kessler. I'm also thinking about Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted sometime soon. I'm also thinking about um, those murderers of Ahmaud Arbery and how that trial seems to be going. I'm thinking about that we just elected a governor who is a, a Trump puppet. And these things are all connected. It is not just signs v. Kessler, let's fix white supremacy and show them how we hate it, which again, this might be another disappointment, right? And so I think it's worth realizing that when we talk about Charlottesville, we are of course talking about 
the 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 cutesy little community that people have turned Charlottesville into as if it's some kind of a democratic oasis in a sea of republicanism which in part it is at the same time it is plagued by the actual plague but also the plague of white supremacy in the way that white liberalism functions here as a distraction and an anesthesia and so that is how I would imagine the climate. Again, I, I can't say how everybody is doing. I would never say everyone in Charlottesville feels blank because you can't, I don't think you can realistically say that. But I can only say about the people that I am in community with, the people who I love and work in love and struggle with, and sometimes against, we're tired. And that's that would be, you know, one of the things. I would, I would imagine, as well as, you know, grateful for people who are willing to step forward and be vulnerable and talk again and rehash again the violence perpetrated against them in the hopes that this is going to persuade some white jury that white supremacy is something that needs to be stopped. We'll see. Yeah. Amen. Amen, Sister Lisa, amen. Because, you know, the, the trial is one tactic, right? It's just like one small tactic in trying to dismantle white supremacy. So the trial is a civil trial. It's not a criminal trial. Its purpose is to basically find these individuals as responsible for inciting racial violence and hit them with a financial fine that would be suitable to basically dismantle their resources in order to do further violence. It doesn't fix anything that happened, right? It's, it's a tool of the capitalist society that we have in order to try and, you know, take away resources from these individuals. So it's not the end all be all. It's not the only way that that folks in Charlottesville are fighting white supremacy. It's it's one small part of of the arsenal that you know we're trying to to gather to to be able to shut people down and you know to lisa's point you know it doesn't bring anyone back right it doesn't it doesn't bring back the lives lost it doesn't bring back it doesn't heal the terror that that people felt the trauma that people are still under it's just a tactic and and you know it's a tactic that is using the same tools that we're trying to dismantle so that's that's also a part of you know we're trying to dismantle this this system of mass incarceration and the carceral state that's so based on this idea that you know you bring two people into a courtroom and and somehow something just is going to come out of it uh, when we know the system is working exactly as designed right the system has has been designed and put into place to protect white resources lives power money all of that and so from that point standpoint sure it would be nice if if the system were actually to to uh work in our favor but again it's not the end all be all and it's not the i think something i find very frustrating about some of the media narratives is the the way that the ways in which they seek efficiency and that seems to reflect a certain spirit of laziness and reluctance so in the same way that people thought that some people can think that racism is over because Barack Obama was elected president, therefore there's no more racism, I'm pretty sure there could be, a, there could be someone out there who is saying, 
that, it, you know, if this trial goes in a good way, you know, with a conviction, that that's another sign that we have cured racism because see racial wrongdoers, such as these people who are being identified in this trial, those are the real racists, not the people that are propping up systemic injustice, not the people that vote in very deliberately anti-Black ways, not the people who are saying that critical race theory is tainting their children's education, even though no K-12 school in the U.S. is teaching critical race theory, which is what you learn in law school, people. It is a legal series of ideas designed to unpack American jurisprudence. That is where it started. That's why it started in law school with Derek Bell and Patricia. Yeah, we, we, we talk about critical race theory in our schools as also known as the truth, awesome. right? Like also known as history, also known as science, also yeah. known as <laughs> literature, also known as math. Exactly. And just like you were saying about all the white things that our system is designed to protect, the main one is comfort. Yeah. White comfort matters more than Black lives. And that is the only reason why we end up having conversations about what the ways in which white history is mandatory and Black history is an elective. So, I mean, that, that essentially they've been able to kind of weaponize critical race theory as, a, as just basically anything that makes white people uncomfortable and it's dangerous for white children in schools. Even though these white children in, in schools are being horribly racist and harmful to their classmates in toxic ways, no one has interviewed a black parent about how their child is taught about race in school. Yeah. Exactly. And you see pieces of that even on display within this trial, whether it's the questionnaire that jurors were given and that arduous process, right, of getting rid of anyone who had any idea of what racism is in our world and how it functions. And I think there's just a bunch of ways where it's kind of showing up with the questioning, the narrative that these defendants are trying to weave, and just the process throughout all of these trials that we named the Signs v. Kessler, Ahmaud Arbery's murderers, and as well as the Rittenhouse, we see exactly, um, as you were saying, Chris, that the justice system is working just as is intended. And there are Black and Brown people who are filtered through that system every day. And so while we're seeing these white folks go through this process, understanding that the reasons why we're building towards abolition is because it's simply not working for us. And it's not, it's not working for the greater good. Yeah. And it was never meant to, right? Like it was... <laughs> absolutely never meant to it is the way people go through this system and the way people is exactly the way the system was built for it to happen one of my areas in ministry is doing prison ministry and and sometimes you know when we're doing grant work or something like that and people want to talk about recidivism in you know the population and and i said the only recidivism that i that i respond to is the recidivism of police officers putting black and brown bodies in jail so so if you want to talk about recidivism, if you want to talk about, you know, getting those rates down, yes. I'd love to have that conversation because that's actually the conversation that gets people free, right? Yes. And y'all know we are free them all platform. So that means a lot. Lisa, I appreciate you bringing up the trauma that this trial has reified, the wounds that are being reopened, the bravery of the plaintiffs and coming forward with their stories yet again, but in this public way. And thinking about that as a tactic, right? Like the fact that they have this 
strategy that they're they're utilizing to me that is like I just want to highlight that for our listeners right like that is huge brave and also very strategic and so the idea of the money coming from these individuals and just draining them of their ability to continue their terror um, as a tactic that I don't know that I've necessarily heard in in the news or like what the civil piece of it really means yeah can we talk yeah, a th- little bit more about the narrative and the mainstream? Can y'all talk a little bit about the narrative around, and I'm putting this in quotes for our listeners, around Charlottesville and this lawsuit and what you wish was different? Well, I would just say, just I'm, I'm going to let Chris talk more because she knows more in the weeds about what's happening with the trial. I have, from my own self-preservation, have not been able to follow I was there, and I I think Chris was too, when that car came through. I was standing at the intersection when the car came through and murdered Heather. I was, and so I don't need to read anything. I don't need to watch any movies. I will never forget that. We, my husband and I woke up screaming for weeks. I don't need to, I remember. And so the thing that I think is important is that this is a civil case and not criminal. And that tells you all you need to know, I think, about American law, that these people were not charged with any kind of criminal because somehow there's lots of things in America that are lawful and wrong, you know, slavery, for example, Jim Crow, for example, mass incarceration, for example, right? And so the idea that the only way to do it is to hit them in the pockets, right? And this is, is, this has been a tactic since I think it was the 80s when they, they gutted the Klan, right? By limiting its ability with the lawsuits to get them, you know, so we find ways to use the system, maybe not the criminal justice system, but the, the part of the same apparatus in civil court to do what criminal courts will not do, which is criminalize white supremacy. It makes sense to me that that we have not been able to pass any kind of anti-black hate crime laws, you know, like, but not, you know, I think that the anti-Asian violence went passed really quickly through Congress last year after those women were murdered, which I, again, I'm not saying that that should not have happened. So let me be clear, but let me also be clear that there is a reason that there is not one against black people because one of the major assaulters of black people is law enforcement. So you can't, there's no way they would pass such a bill to protect us because the people that are targeting us also are employed by the state to do so. So it just feels like more of what some colleagues call the changing same, you know? And that is, that is where I am at. And like I said, I have, I have been informed only insofar as the organization that I co-founded, Carmel, which is the Charlottesville Anti-Racist Media Liaisons, I co-founded that collective. That is my only involvement. And that has been rather hands-off and more administrative than anything. I just, my heart cannot go through it again. I want to say that thank you for that transparency and like modeling what it's like to take care of yourself because it's, it's exposing ourselves again and again. And thank you for sharing your experience as well. I just want to lift that, Lisa. We are in community, you know? And so it, it really is something that I take absolutely seriously in every part of my life that I can. And that's why I'm like, yes, I'm a UVA professor. UVA is not a community. That job, that's not a job. That's work. 
and I do have community with colleagues and I have friends, but that's an institution designed to protect itself. They don't get my heart. They pay me to do a job and I do it wonderfully, really well. Um, but the things that I do that really in my mind matter, you know, are the things that happen beyond the classroom and in, in community. So, I mean, again, this is not to say that I hate my job or whatever, none of that, none of that is true. But, and I know, but I just feel like it's also important for me to understand that yes, that my job does give me a lot of authority in many spaces, but I never, never use that. You can't bring that into community because who gives a shit? Everybody has something to do. You know what I mean? Like any organization I've ever been a part of, any action, any whatever, I am not the one in charge. Thank God. I am just there to listen. And they say, we're meeting at this place and we're going to walk from here to there. I'm like, okay, let's go walk then. I'll be back here. Well, I think, Lisa, what you said about community is exactly, you know, and again, those tactics around this trial is exactly what we're talking about, right? So it's not a coincidence that the plaintiffs in this are some of the folks that we were able to identify as having privilege within the system, right? So it was intentional. I will just speak for myself because I can't speak for the plaintiffs, nor do I. But it is an intentional thing to look at, who, you know, the, the actors and players of A11, A12, which is what we call August 11th and August 12th in Charlottesville, and see who was it that had enough power and privilege to be able to, you know, take this this a long haul. So it's been many years that this trial has been making its way through the system. And that doesn't happen without, you know, power and privilege, right? And so it's it's very intentional that we look and see, and, and that has to be part of our intentionality when we're in community is who does have the positions of power and privilege for whatever specific tactic or strategy we're trying to put forward and those should be the people that are using that power and privilege right so sometimes as a unitarian universalist minister religious educator that power and privilege is mine right sometimes as a latina that power and privilege is mine depending on what community i am sometimes as a lgbtq member that power and privilege is mine depending again on what what area I'm in. And so it's really important. And this is one of the things that the media has not said at all, right, is this analysis around who has the power and privilege to be able to put these things forward and then move with it. Because without that analysis, you're just re-traumatizing people just for the hell of it. Right? We're just, just you know, without any kind of uh, a thought as to you know what it would take to have some of our more vulnerable people who who experienced A11, A12 be up there. Not to say that the plaintiffs aren't vulnerable; they are, but they do have positions of power and privilege that are allowing them to to be in this in this trial, and that's important. To your point of you know what the media has missed, I really feel like that's that's part of what what has been missed. I think that the idea of why it's important to hold these white supremacist individuals accountable has been missed in a lot of it. I know, you know, as Lisa said, the the group that she founded, I'm one of the 
the media liaisons for it. And so much of the media, the early media was like, okay, so when are you going to have your rally at the courthouse? And, you know, when are you, you know, what is the, you know, vigil that's going to be, you know, at, at the kickoff? And we're like, no, these, these individuals who are the plaintiffs, their biggest message is they were going about their everyday lives and heard the call to be there on A11 and A12 and did it, right? They're not some kind of superpower. They're not some kind of superhuman. This is, these were people doing their everyday lives and putting it on the line to be there to face off against these white supremacists. And that's what we need. Yes. Yes. And so I, I didn't know much about the media liaison group before our conversation, but I'm interested in that experience of dealing with the mainstream folks and their crazy asks and all of that. Because I know just from my experience dealing with, you know, mainstream media, it can be very exhausting. You're like, this is out of left field. Y'all are so far away from the truth. So how has that been? Just the process in general. It's been actually, we, one of the things that we started, my, my co-founder and I talked about is that media is a choice. Media is a choice. That's what we tell our people. Media is a choice. It's a choice. You don't have to do it. You can say no. It is not necessary. You do not have to do it. Somebody else can do it. It does not have to be you. And then we realized that we just tell them that reporters are lazy. And if you give them the press release, they'll pretty much say pretty much what you're going to say. Just put that in there. And then answer the questions you want to answer, even if they're questions they haven't asked. So we do a lot of like, so that's, that's just a few of the things we talk about in media training and just to kind of help people realize that what they're providing for you is a platform to share and to kind of get into the conversation ideas that have not yet been put there. And so it's a way to get, and that's one of the things we talked about with, with activists and with organizers, you know, if those, you know, again, some people are, some people that we work with are very interested in being involved with mainstream media and some want nothing to do with it at all, at all, and would never, right? And it's like, both of you are correct. You have the right idea and we are with you a hundred percent. So it's really about support and messaging. That's something I, I guess, as a literature person, someone who is very interested in representation, et cetera, et cetera, felt, it felt to me like there was not enough attention being paid to the people who were really doing, you know, making themselves vulnerable, who were, who were putting themselves in harm's way, who were taking risks that had serious physical, emotional, financial consequences, that those were the people that should be being interviewed. These are the people that you should be talking to, not just the usual suspects, as it were, you know, the people who have authorized positions of power and authority. And so that as a part of the principle of the organizing was really important. And one of the amazing things about that, I shouldn't even say amazing, one of the beautiful things about that is that how quickly and easily the anti-racist organizations within Charlottesville were just like breathing a sigh of relief. Ah, oh, 
we don't have to figure this out. Each individual organization doesn't have to spend the time and resource to figure out, you know, how are we going to talk to the press and who's going to talk to them? Here's this collective that is very loosely organized, right? It, it's, it's people still can't wrap their heads around that. They're like, wait, you don't have like a, a person from each organization within this organization talking. And we're like, no, we, we get on signal and we figure it out. Yeah, we get, <laughs> come on. And but on my porch, we meet on my porch, and we also figure things out that way. We'll just talk, talk some more. <laughs> That's right. And so you know, we just the idea that that it is a relief for these organizations to be able to direct people to somewhere where they they can trust because we're in community, like because we have hung out on the porch, yes. because we have played dominoes, because we have been to the cookout and eaten together, right? Like pre-pandemic times people but you know we've built that trust so that everybody doesn't have to be out there on their own and and can be doing what they their or specific organization is best positioned to do and it's been so helpful like this was again pre-pandemic like for different different trials different different things at the courthouse like i would be there with little tiny flyers and i'd find a reporter and i would talk to my people beforehand i'd say hey who wants to talk? Does anybody want to talk? Somebody wants to talk about so-and-so. Somebody had a question about so-and-so. Hey, come over here real quick. There's somebody, there's, a, there's somebody here who's writing who I think you should totally talk to. And then like actually just put them together right there at the site of the action, you know, or when we know people are going to be coming in, it's like, oh, this is someone who, I'm not saying they can, anyone, the reporters can talk to anybody they want to, right? They, they, and they will, but because we know that the the space for getting our ideas out there is so limited and the windows can close so quickly, it's always nice to be able to turn and say, hey, this person has a lot of great things to say. Let me put you in touch with this particular outlet, you know, or let's meet and or here's some here's a handout of our statements. You can take these when you write your stories. Here you go. You know, like those kind of things feel more, they feel like more than messaging. They feel like contributing to what will become the public record. And it makes the public record feel more public and less controlled by like either political folks or other authorities or whatever, that it really makes it feel like it's coming from, from people. Yeah, and and that is so crucial. Just what you said, Lisa, about that that community aspect of it, because you know one of the things that we have been very vocal about is that we will not allow our quotes to be used in publications that are also giving a platform for white supremacists. No platform. And and so we open because we open we the the folks that are the media liaisons we open all of our interviews now with a statement happy to give you this interview happy for you to take the quotes of this interview i understand you're always and i put this in quotes still shaping the way this article is going to be written because they never want to say what it's going to be totally fine what you need to know is that if you give a platform to white supremacists here's the quote that you need to use our organization reached out to anti-racist organizers in charlottesville who declined to comment because our platform is giving space to white supremacists so it, it's your choice it's those media outlets choice 
whether or not they use our material, right? We're not saying we're not going to talk to the media. We will talk to you however much you need us to. But when you when those media outlets make a choice to also platform white supremacists, then that choice has consequences. And that's so important because we've seen time and time again how, and I continue to put it in quotes because of how it's weaponized, Charlottesville comes up in news cycles. And since, you know, we're in 2021 now, we've been able to see these iterations time and time again. And y'all, y'all know this, I'm telling you, you lived through it, right? But having that understanding that they're going to weaponize it, they're going to do what they want to do and not, not standing for it. It's strategic communications and it's organizing and it's beautiful that y'all are doing that in a way that y'all are on your porches, right? Doing <laughs> communications organizing so that the truth is being told, true truth telling in the tradition of our, our ancestors doing that work. So important, so important. It's funny when I, you mentioned the portrait tonight, I mentioned it first. I was thinking about, there's a there's a press called Kitchen Table Press, and it's a Black woman, because it was like all of these women that we kind of revere and respect for the work that they did in 1970, they changed the literary landscape. They gave us a robust new phase of Black women's literary history, and they did it at a kitchen table. And yeah. so like this idea of having the Kitchen Table Press is that same idea that we can do strategic communications that we can do and build that which we need and we can do it the way that works best for us right and i've been telling people this is the second time today i've said this quote i know y'all have heard it before but we are the ones we have been waiting for damn straight so and and the you know to lisa's point you know this is the kind of information that then allows people when they hear contrary lenses and contrary you know alt facts <laughs> about charlottesville to be able to say hey no you know we we heard the truth we know what the truth is we know that you know one of the one of the press uh, groups wanted a, a quote on now president biden saying you know it was charlottesville that got him in made his decision to to run and and they they wanted some kind of quote as to how we thought he was doing and and i said you know if you're listening to what we're saying you're going to know that that premise that basis of you know if if this is what it took for you to know that there was racism in the us then you're not paying attention and so and it's a willful not paying attention right it's not a oh gee i'm just you know so uninformed it is a willful ignorance yes. um, that we're just not going to tolerate anymore absolutely yes and it fans the flames right that continue on all of this that we're experiencing and we are at this time where we're turning the corner on the four-year anniversary of august 11th and 12th in charlottesville y'all shared quite a few reflections but are there any other reflections and takeaways that you all have to share about this time i would just go back to reiterate that charlottesville is not a hashtag Charlottesville is America, even as Charlottesville has been a lens through which that some have measured the reemergence of violent white supremacy. We are seeing it in places that are also not called Charlottesville. We are seeing it in places like 
Arizona State University that has apparently a very robust Kyle Rittenhouse Defense Fan Club, where they have students like rallying and fundraising for him at the same time that they're Black and Brown students being punished for wanting the Multicultural Student Center to be available for non-white students and white students taking over. We had the exact same thing happen at UVA in 2020, and it kind of fell off the people's visual radar because the pandemic took over. But there was a similar student, a Black woman was talking about the white students taking over the brand new multicultural center and putting the displays on the floor and putting their feet on, feet on the desk and just treating it like any other space that belonged to them. And then when the black students came in and said, hey, y'all, you should be mindful. This is like one of the, this is the only space that we have. White students get angry and furious. The multicultural center is being racist and not encouraging white people to be there. The university president says that the multicultural center, like all spaces are for all students. And then, you know, this student is getting death threats and all sorts of harassment. These sound like small one-off incidents but these are all connected. The same reason that the university will create a multicultural student center, but then not allow it to be for the primary use of multicultural students is an act of cowardice. And it's a refusal to really support students who need support, even though it is legal, right? This idea that somehow it is not legal for Black students to have a space at a predominantly white institution, like that's somehow illegal. And yet the harms that come to Black students, just to name one group, at PWIs is all perfectly natural and normalized, right? And so it's these kind of things that I find very frustrating and that we are seeing it in Charlottesville city government. We're seeing it with this retrenchment of the same type of apathy that was leading up to our summer of hate in 2017. It's, it's the same. It's, the, it's the, the nice white liberals are nice white liberaling us to death. So that's, that's an issue. Yeah, honestly, like Charlottesville is full of communities, right? Of people that have experiences, lives, stories, and tales. So I just find that so important to keep reminding folks that it's more than a hashtag. Thank you for lifting that. Thinking about the conditions that created the environment that allowed A11 and A12 to happen. Thank you for lifting that too, right? Because the question does remain like, how are there still being investments into the systemic violence systems? And I know in Charlottesville, y'all's municipal government is doing its thing um, with its transition. It's the least, some would say it's doing the most, but that would have to mean you do something. Right. It's, right. They're doing the most to oust the Black mayor and make all the work and the gains that she's made seem moot. That, that they're doing the most of, but they're doing the least of everything else. Yes. And I'm sure continued investment into the police. Yeah. And I think that goes to, you know, again, what Lisa just said, you know, the the nice, and I'm putting nice in quotes, the nice white liberaling us to death. And that is 
exactly what the plaintiffs of this trial are talking about, right? That it cannot just, the idea that you can somehow just be a good person and go about your good person way and treat everyone the same, you know, all of these, all of these phrases, and that, that somehow that is going to be enough is not going to fly anymore, right? That is not what we're going to leave it at, right? Because that doesn't get the job done. That doesn't get people free. Exactly. It just makes it really comfortable for nice white liberals, right? And if the end goal is liberation, then you have to back up from that and say, what is going to get us that liberation, right? And if you're looking at that, you're going to have to look at what got us here in the first place. And the destructive capitalism and slavery and genocide that this country saw, we have to deal with. We have to be able to say those words, know that they're the truth, and figure out what we're going to do about it. We don't, people, you know, tell me all the time, oh, you want white people to feel so bad and so terrible and so guilty. I don't want them to feel any kind of way. I want us to get people free, <laughs> right? It's not just enough to say, oh, we're really sorry that happened, but that's in the past. And, and I love what you're saying, Chris, and I absolutely agree. And I know we, you've seen it as well. It's these, this question that somehow a white person feeling bad is actionable right right that if a white person feels bad that's meant to somehow yield or produce something of consequence and i was i broke this down once for a class talking about white guilt they're like oh those liberals just want me to have white guilt white guilt white guilt and i was like you know what's interesting about white guilt it relies on the assumption that people are not saying the assumption behind white guilt is that white people by nature are innocent, that whiteness itself is unassailable and free of wrongdoing and harm. Imagine the phrase black guilt. Where's black guilt, right? It doesn't make any sense because we do not live in a nation that finds blackness to be unassailable and naturally automatically default innocent. And so this idea of white guilt, as if that's somehow an offering that a white person has to kind of scrape out the inside of their heart and put together in, a, in, the, in their cupped hands, their feeling of guilt, and they're giving it to me as if I can take, as if that's some kind of currency, as if that does anything or has any effect on any material situation, just their feeling of upset is somehow sufficient. And yet we do know that white comfort matters more than black lives and that white comfort drives policy and white discomfort and anxiety and concern and fear, whatever, drives elections. And so I don't see how we can have a sustainable system that continues to rely on making sure that white people remain at emotional equilibrium about the benefits of the harm that they have inherited. And so like when people are like, well, that slavery was in the past, that had nothing to do with me. I ain't do nothing. I never owned any slaves. And I'm like, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones said this, if you can enjoy the fruits of the oppression that your ancestors did, right? If you can still spend the money that they earned in 1880, if you're still earning interest, if you have a family trust, 
that's earning interest on accounts that you all built when you're with your family business in 1920 when black people couldn't own things, then you are reaping a benefit from a system of inequity. You're still reaping it, whether you wanna say so or not. And so that's the thing that always gets me, you know, this idea that somehow white people feeling badly is meant to be sufficient for justice, sufficient. That is, okay, fine, I feel bad. Now are you happy? What? No, that's that's just a step. Yeah, I tell people and you know, anti-racism work, if if you've kind of got a pit in your stomach and you're feeling like, wow, this is really uncomfortable, you're probably doing it right. Like you're probably on the very beginning edge of doing something good. So go with that feeling, go through it, and recognize on the other side of that is not more feeling bad. Right? right? On the other side of that is liberation on the other side of that is feeling good for everyone not just you because this affects everyone different ways but it affects everyone and it's not it's not healthy it's certainly not god's intended heaven on earth for us and it's not a way for us to live into the promise and beauty of community it just isn't. It's a, it's it's just not the beauty that that we know is possible, and and it is possible. We have all of the resources that were ever needed to be able to enact a liberated world view, a liberated world population. We 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 know we have those resources. It's no longer a zero sum game. Exactly. Yes. And I have the utmost respect for your patience with white folks' feelings and their development. I have to say I'm in a chapter where it is hard for me to even think about it, right? But especially uh, just hearing the ways that, especially Chris, with your conversations, it sounds like these, these conversations. So thank you for that. And yeah, I definitely think that there is a role for all of us to play in this fight for freedom. And on that note, how are y'all keeping up the anti-racist and anti-fascist fight in Charlottesville. I think there's, a, I think a lot of things are going quite well. I think we have a lot of groups, um, UVA Beyond Policing or just Beyond Policing. That's one of the, the, I know there's lots of really great initiatives that are happening. One thing that I just wanted to lift up, and I think Chris might have others as well, but I want to lift up the Swords into Plowshares. And that is an initiative that the Jefferson School is leading to secure the Robert E. Lee statue remnants and to transform it into something that would be a piece of art worthy of a community. That, that, that this would be an opportunity to take something that has been so harmful and divisive and wounding and to turn it into balm, to turn it into a piece of a process that will, that will be curated, that'll be at a place where Black history and Black stories are centered. It would be really powerful. I've actually already found an artist I think would be great. Christine Mays, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, Mays, M-A-Y-S. She is an amazing Black woman sculptor who does work with rebar, where she stitches individual links of pieces of metal into these gorgeous light-filled objects that look like ancestors, that the, the, the traces of the ancestors dancing. She's, it's an ex exhibition right now called Rich Soil in DC. 
outside and it's on a former plantation. And what she has tried to do is to channel, yeah, christinemays.com, put a link in the, in the show notes. She's really great. I interviewed her for my podcast and she is like doing ancestral heart work. She is doing ancestral heart work. And it seems like that material in her hands. And one of the things that she's told me, and I mentioned this again in class today, she says, the thing about the work that I do is that the tension keeps it together. Mm. That when she hooks one thing to another thing and then you pull, I mean, I couldn't describe it. I couldn't do it well. Her, the way that she describes her process, but she she ends up making these 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 beautiful garments and people and images that are just so full of light and hope and joy and resilience and survival. And so, looking at her work just feels like yeah, she should take. We should hopefully get the statue and then get her to do something with it. She's got a piece in Marta in one of the Marta stations. She's got pieces all over. She also was um, did an exhibition, part of an exhibition called Black Woman is God. And she's got some pieces in that show. Like she's amazing. So I'm lifting, I'm mentioning Christine because I do want to lift up the, the Jefferson School's efforts to have the statue be given to them for, for transformation and growth and healing. And I think that they would do a wonderful job with it. Andrea Douglas uh, is, a, is an art historian by training, and she's a curator and president of the, of, the, of, the, of the Heritage Center. And I think they would be great. And I know there's also been a lot of work with our strategic plan and trying to do better with affordable housing. Maybe Chris has more work on that. But that's I just wanted to mention that particular project. Yeah, it's so important that a Charlottesville organization be the one to be able to to transform those statues that came down. Absolutely critical. One of the places that you know we really need folks to show up is at their local school boards. Local school board meetings have become our have returned to become, you know, battleground locations for racism, for homophobia, for transphobia. And we really need people to be showing up, to be questioning what is being put into policy. The Hate Free Schools Coalition in Charlottesville did a fantastic job at getting the school resource officers, which is just another word for police, out of out of schools. But that is just one small area of, of the area. So, you know, Charlottesville, when people think of Charlottesville, there's Charlottesville City, there's Albemarle County, there's all the surrounding counties. And, you know, certainly where I sit in Augusta County, we have just had some of the most horrific attacks on trans students and on, you know, like we said before, critical race theory, aka history, aka science, aka math. And so we really need people showing up in their local school board meetings. There is a real danger in Charlottesville right now because the Charlottesville administration, political and city administration is imploding. There is a real danger of falling back and, and going backwards and having even less accountability. Whenever you have transitions of this type in city government, the ability to pe for people to do nefarious things and to to just even put off any kind of progress that has been made is real. 
And so we need people at those city council meetings, at those county supervisor meetings, holding people accountable, holding our elected officials accountable for that forward progress that we're trying to make. If there is nobody there to say no, then there's that isn't going to be heard, right? And so it is crucial for people to show up and to be able to say, no, we are going to continue to need people to be accountable for progress. Yes, absolutely right. And are there any particular calls to action happening right now as things are moving through on the local level or just in the community? So there's a couple of resources out there. There is a, with the anticipation of the verdict coming in, you know, tomorrow or Monday, we have reestablished a flash fund for the A11, A12 survivors. So there is a place to actually donate to those survivors. We'll be accepting donations through the end of December and doing disbursements in January. There was a previous fund that had run out last year. And so this is just a flash fund, a small a small kind of window in time to be able to um, send some direct support to change people's material lives for the better. And then also there's definitely the Swords to Plowshare, which Lisa mentioned, to be able to put people's advocacy behind the Jefferson School getting that contract because it is a contract and it is out for bid. And then third, to continue to ensure that the city government that with the, you know, implosion of, you know, the, the city chief operating officer, like there's a lot of people who are leaving city government right now to ensure that all of the hard won progressive reforms that our mayor has put forth stay in place when our mayor leaves and stay in place when all of the all of these shifts are happening. Is there any virtual access to your city council and municipal meetings or is it all in person in Charlottesville? I think some of the meetings, some of the meetings are online and that you, people can sign up to speak. And so if we go, if you go through like the city of Charlottesville website, they will have the schedule and there's also links there in how to join. I do believe that they're still conducting business via some of the meetings I know most recently have been via Zoom because I know people have been signing up to, to talk and to get on the list and then just waiting and then raising your hand or whatever. So there are ways to virtually participate. Yeah. And that goes the same for the jail boards. So, you know, in Charlottesville, we have some of the detention centers that direct people to the profit making center in Farmville, which is a a immigration and naturalization ICE detention center at those jail board meetings are the times when they're making policy about, you know, when somebody is released, if they are undocumented, whether or not they're getting handed over to or whether or not not ICE is being notified of those releases so that they can, you know, just scoop people up and put them into their for-profit beds, which is really what that that whole program is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really important decisions being made, and I'm hearing that call for, for folks to show up and uh, bear witness and also speak out. And are there ways for folks to follow you all or keep up with you, support the work that you're doing? So, you know, a lot of folks ask us that and and you know there's certainly you know black lives matter there's um show up for racial justice there's there's groups in charlottesville who are doing this work and there's certainly you know congregate charlottesville has social media presence charlottesville beyond policing has a social media presence so those are definitely you know groups that that folks can be 
following, but I want to be clear, like following is not enough, right? You need to get out in those streets and be making connections with other people other actual human beings in order for this work to have to happen. I'm a big proponent of virtual space as a resource to help what is happening in actual physical space, right? And so it's really, really crucial, particularly for some reason in Charlottesville. This isn't always the same in other cities, but I've noticed in Charlottesville, it is people making those connections at those meetings that then gets them galvanized to, to really bring about the change that is needed. And it's also the presence that makes our politicians and our city government officials pay attention. Yes. They pay attention to the people that are in those meetings, disrupting behaviors right when when we see racism going on and we are there in that moment to stop it and to call it and to say what it is in that moment what you just said was racist what you just said was homophobic what you're trying to do is 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 transphobic those moments are the moments that are that our officials are are paying attention to and I think it also makes it so that we're building power to not just be at their mercy when we're building those relationships so that when they continue to disappoint us, like we know they do, we can continue to build power that goes beyond what they're able to do in their, their positions. And it just to, just, to, just to add to what you both said, the idea of showing up, I know that like for cop watch and for court watch, when, when there's somebody at court, when you go to court and you just sit there, I feel like there was a season when I felt like I was going to court every other day, you know, but you go and you sit there and that's all you do is sit there and it makes a difference. Like when somebody has somebody else waiting on them or watching their studies have shown that the outcomes are different when there's somebody there. And so please, you know, send money to this flash fund that Congregate Seville is doing to, to help survivors who are being re-traumatized through the trial, support local initiatives, you know, call city council and tell them to give the statute to the Jefferson School. Like do, those are things that you can absolutely do. But also I would urge everybody listening to look around your own community because Charlottesville is America. And Charlottesville is not the only racist place in this country. That there are similar issues, maybe not exactly the same, but similar issues in your own local community that can be improved by your involvement. And that I think is just a reminder of claiming our own power and claiming our own capacity to intervene in matters that might sometimes seem too far beyond our control. Period. <laughs> so for our Charlottesville listeners, Chris has laid out a few wonderful organizations and groups to check out. We'll be sure to link all of these things in our show notes. And for folks that are not in Charlottesville that are listening, y'all heard our guests? Join, link, engage, find your people and start to do the change in your community that y'all need and tell us about it because we'd love to hear about it. So thank y'all so much for coming on to the show. We're so happy to have you. Y'all are welcome to come back anytime. I would love it. I would love it too. Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. 
As always, solidarity to those involved in the struggle. And thank you for listening.